This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You know, to put Jesus at the center means to center the people Jesus centered. And um, that is always the oppressed, always, every single time, the powerless are the ones. He goes out of his way to get in the way of those who lack power, right, in order to give it away. So please, don't be afraid and like, let the light come. This is a podcast about two things, helping those with urgent needs in front of us today and also improving the road so others can walk it safely in the future. Welcome to The Better Samaritan, where we're learning how to do good better, and we're grateful to be doing that with you, whether in everyday interactions or complex humanitarian challenges. I'm Ken Tannen, co-director of the Humanitarian Disaster Institute at Wheaton College. I'm joined by my colleague and co-host Jamie Ayton and our producer, Laura Finch. Today we're talking with Danielle Strickland. Uh, we're so grateful for Danielle's work and all she's done in the Salvation Army as an officer. Uh, she's worked with groups like Amplify Peace, Brave Global infinitum and women speaking collective she's the author of better together how women and men can heal the divide and work together to transform the future welcome danielle we're so grateful to be with you hey thanks it's great to be with you too danielle we just recently all of us have read about this um sexual abuse report that came out in the southern baptist church other smaller denominations are facing this in the country um, and it's been happening for years, but it's uh, newly in the news. And know that you just went through, you know, sort of a, a, a sexual abuse scandal at a church where you were teaching and leading. Uh, do you mind just setting the context for those who aren't familiar with the meeting house and what happened there? And then our, our thoughts for listeners are to really understand the big picture of what's happening with the driving concern of how can churches get better at preventing is most important, this kind of scandal, but then also of responding well um, when this kind of thing happens. Um, so do you mind setting a little context for what happened at uh, the Meeting House? And we want to walk through kind of a, a timeline together and think of and learn together. How can churches do better at responding when this kind of thing happens? Yeah, sure, Ken. Thanks for um, thanks for asking. I mean, I, I don't think this is an issue that's going away or mm-hmm. sort of a one church issue. It seems like it is spanned the entire Right. Uh, church world in all denominations. And so it, it is something I think that God is uh, exposing. And mm-hmm. uh, because I think he loves the church and wants to see her well. So mm-hmm. there is a sickness for sure. So in my own local context, a uh, victim of sexual abuse by Bruxy Cavey, who is the senior pastor and the main teacher and the found, one of the founders of the church called the Meeting House in Canada, uh, a, a victim uh, disclosed to me some allegations of abuse. Um, in that disclosure, I've been um, ah, friends with and walked with uh, sexually exploited women for ah, over 20 years. Mm-hmm. Many of them, all of them actually victims of abuse, I think, if I'm, yeah, all of them. So some of what she was disclosing to me was super familiar in terms of pattern and content. It was alarming. Um, and I, with her, along with her, uh, 
sent those allegations uh, forward to the, we, we presented them to the executive pastor and the chief overseer, mm-hmm. which is uh, like the head elder, I guess. And, um, and then from there, Bruxy was put on immediate suspension after those allegations were given. Um, and then an investigation was started. Let's go. Let's do this then. That's super helpful for and for context for people. The Meeting House is a really large, influential church in Canada, in Toronto, and in Canada. So let's back up even to that. So if a, a church is thinking, how do we how do we do better in preparing for if if uh, awful abuse like this would happen in our church? So go right at the very first. This uh, woman spoke to you. What are the right ways for a church to have someone that can be spoken to? You you could be an advocate in that situation mm-hmm. for her. What are recommendations or what did you learn through your experience of, you know, how does that first conversation of, you know, oh, this, this horrible thing happened to me. How, how do we get better at, at making it possible for people to report abuse? Yeah, actually, that's great. I'm so glad you stopped it there because I'd say that is, that's like a number one thing to pay attention to. One of the things that she shared with me was there was no one else she could think of to tell mm-hmm. um, that it might end that that a person to tell that it might actually be taken seriously. Right. Um, and so I think it's interesting. My role with the meeting house was in, but not of, in a way. So I came from outside to join the teaching team uh, and to help with some communication strategy. But I. Um, wasn't sort of in the hierarchy of the system, if you know what I mean. So okay. I think that provided me some perspective and some clarity. And then also, I think just my experience uh, helps me in this regard. So one of the things I think that needs to be done immediately is it needs to be clear that there is somebody who is safe and independent enough to trust, to tell uh, the truth, and then somebody who can actually advocate um, on behalf of a victim. So that, and I think that could be the same person, but it needs to be somebody that is, uh, tasked with the assignment of both listening, bearing witness to affirming the victim, and then also starting a process. There needs to be some accountability built in, um, to the system. Mm -hmm. And I think that needs to be communicated widely, um, like I would suggest even on your church's website, like I would suggest like as much mm-hmm. as you possibly can say, Hey, we want to be the most transparent, uh, church and we welcome all feedback. Here is somebody specifically appointed to this task, um, who's qualified and able to listen, to discern, and then to begin some accountability. And Danielle, in addition to the messaging from the church, and I really appreciate that, that, mm-hmm. you know, it even needs to start with first time somebody hits our website to making sure that we have somebody on staff who's prepared to do this. What are the sort of things, though, that maybe somebody who's not on staff, how can they become more of a welcoming person? You know, like, so for in this case, she came to you, but I've also heard a lot of circumstances where the situation has been the person has turned to somebody next to them in the pew, so to speak, and then that uh, initial uh, sharing gets lost in the shuffle and maybe doesn't make it to leadership or gets stifled in some way. So what can the person do in the pew to be more prepared for these sorts of conversations? 
Yeah, I think, you know, this is interesting because not only have people been stifled, but literally people have brought this to leadership before and it has mm-hmm. been uh, covered up or minimized mm-hmm. or dismissed uh, or literally like covered. Um, and so there's a pattern of that in churches. And I think, I don't know, it's a knee jerk reaction to protect the church at the expense of truth uh, and particularly at the expense of victims. So I think we have to be, you know, we have to overcorrect in this area. I really do. And I think it means we have to be really transparent. We have to teach people. Um, I think there should just be, you know, the stats are about five to 9% of especially clergy sexual abuse, about five to 9%, they say on average, actually report at all. So the chances of somebody, I mean, if you think about it long enough, what is the win Mm -hmm. for the person? You know, like even the victim I've, uh, I've been journeying with, I mean, it's only cost her to do this. Right. So what is the win for her? The only win for her is her own sense of self, right? Like knowing that this is wrong and, and learning to use her voice to say so and potentially protecting other victims. Those are the only two things that motivate her. And I would say she leans heavier on the second one mm-hmm. of protecting other people from harm. And all the victims that I've ever spoken to feel the same way. The only win in this for them would be to protect other people from harm. So I would say that we need to learn how to lean in to believing people mm-hmm. uh, and particularly believing victims. So right now we lean towards perpetrators. Um, I think we lean toward leaders. Uh, we lean into defense. And I think we really need to lean into transparency. And I think this is actually a win for even uh, wrongful, you know, even if somebody is not telling the truth, I think leaning into believing, supporting and transparent systems will be good for everybody. I like that. It's re- really helpful and to set up that transparency as uh, you know, part of our commitment to God and being the church and, and seeking truth. So moving kind of along the timeline there, so someone report to someone like you who's in leadership but not in it or like jamie said someone in the pew and then you said you took it to i think an executive one of the executive pastors and leaders so question then for someone getting better at this if someone were you know a board member an elder at a church how can they be transparent kind of at that leadership level it seems like part of it is talking ahead of time how do we report how are we going to respond to this but you may have other ideas as well as the timeline goes you took it up like what's the right way for leadership to be prepared for something like this yeah absolutely i think every church leadership if they haven't already in this season that we're in they need to do this right away Mm -hmm. is you need to have a crisis management uh, system in place so i would say you need to be prepared Um, and you need to walk that through. So I think one of the the great tragedies of what did happen at the meeting house and the way that it happened was just a lack of preparedness, uh, Mm -hmm. with the, with the folks that were handling that. So I think they got the whole, like, whoa, we need, we need to do this first thing right and suspended and then investigated. I'm not sure they hired the right investigator. I'm not sure they knew exactly what to do. Uh, and then I'm not sure they really, there wasn't really a victim centered approach. Um, like I think they were kind, but I don't even think they knew what victim centered approach even is or what it means. Um, and so I think there was a whole bunch of, uh, things that were mishandled, probably rightly motived, but mishandled in the process. Um, and so I, I think that all needs to be planned. And I think there are some experts who can help, you know, I know in the America grace, 
um, is a great organization that can, that can help. There is some uh, training that's available. There's some experts that you can talk to and really to get prepared for this as uh, a possibility is probably the best thing churches can do. So Danielle, I want to make sure that we come back to that term, um, victim focused care or response. But before we dig into that, I just wanted to back up. You were talking about the importance of being prepared. And, you know, at our Institute, one of the things that we often do is reaching out to churches to help them get prepared for disasters, for example. And I remember doing a survey once where I was interviewing a number of pastors about how prepared is your church? Do you have a plan? What would this actually look like? And most of them said, yeah, we have a plan in place. But I think the most robust plan I actually heard from the pastors were a couple who said, yeah, I think somebody from the church leadership would like go grab our computer and make sure the doors are locked, you know, in case of like a major disaster. And like that was the extent of their plan. Like they really didn't have one. So when we talk about being prepared for sexual abuse um, and how we'll handle it in the church, what what does that actually look like? Yeah, I think it, it looks like having a very clear um, set of responses. So it looks like what's your communication plan? What is your victim support plan? Um, what is your plan for transparency? So for example, I think where there is one victim in, uh, in the vast majority of cases, there's more than one victim. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. I think for example, like nobody planned, this is what I mean around victim centered is not only how do we support this person and protect this person and defend this person. Like, Uh, but also how do we make sure that there aren't more? Uh And for me, that was one of the great, uh, that was one of the great areas that I wished, you know, uh, there could have been more clarity and more attention given to, because I was pretty convinced as I heard what I heard that there were probably more. So I was like, look, this needs to be, your plan isn't about protecting the church right now. Uh Your plan is about protecting victims. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what I mean by victim focused is like, and this is where your knee jerk reaction is going to be like, but what about the church? But what about the church? But what about the church? But I'm like, okay, look, that is important, but that should not be your primary question when you're dealing with this level of injustice. Um, your primary question needs, what about the, the oppressed? What about the vulnerable? What about the victimized? Mm-hmm. And how can we provide as much support and as much attention and as much protection as we possibly can? And uh, I think part of one, of one of the problems that happens is the church does knee-jerk react and asks the questions, what's going to be, what does this mean for the church? What does this mean for the church? And I'm always mm-hmm. like, you got to get yourself out of the center of this story, at least right now. I think later it's okay to ask those questions, but I think first the questions that you need to ask are, where's the harm? And then how do we address it properly? Um, how do we find it? You know, like, so again, this sort of transparency, I remember David Ruiz giving me a call in the midst of all this, and he's the overseer of the vineyard movement in Canada. And he said to me, you know, he had a a thing that happened in their movement in Winnipeg, and it actually had hit the news because one of their pastors was involved in a police raid. And I mean, it was just horrible. And he said that he went in um, to speak to the media and try to help sort of mitigate some of the damage there. And he said, even on his way in there, he had all these denominational leaders sort of sending him lawyers' names and sending him (laughs) PR companies. And he said, he just felt God say to him, you know, David, I already gave you the tools. You have all the tools you need to deal with this. And uh, it's, you know, it's confession. 
it's repentance, it's restitution. Hmm. Like this is literally, I gave you all the tools. And David said, I have never felt so much fear in my life that I was going to shut down my denomination on my watch, like that I was responsible for this. And the idea of just like open confession and repentance and restitution just seems so wrong in the midst of this, like trying to protect this movement. And he said, but I really wrestled it out in prayer and I decided I was going to go with God. And one of the key central things he said is he said, I felt, I said to God, but this is, you know, this is my job. And then he said, I felt God speak to me and say, but this is my church. Mm. And he said, even just that tiny pivot of like, whose church is this? You know, what, mm-hmm. what does the church exist right. for? Like, why are we right. even here? So he talked to, he said, uh, this reporter called from the, the National News Network. And he said, he didn't realize this, but the reporter had just been on this like uh, investigative research thing, trying to get to the Catholic church. And just, it was literally like, no comment, no comment, no comment, no mm. comment. And he said, he got to David and he said, you know, what do you have to say about this or whatever? And David just said, like, we are absolutely brokenhearted. Like, mm-hmm. it's true. And mm-hmm. we're going to find out if there's more to it. And we are like, we can't be more upset. And, you know, like he just poured out his heart. He said, like, it grieves us. Um, and it grieves us that people have gone through this, that there are victims and we're going to, you know, like he just poured it all out. Mm-hmm. And he said in the middle of pouring all this out to this national reporter, the reporter is like, are you allowed to say all this? <laughs> and, uh, and David said, yeah, I mean, God assured me that um, this is the right thing to do. And he goes, wow. And, uh, and, and then also David said, and he also assured me that like, he's, he's the defender of the vulnerable, like that God mm. is on the side of the oppressed. And then so are we like, and uh, anyway, he finished up. The guy was dumbfounded, the reporter. And he said when he was finishing up the conversation, the producer of the show came on and said, would you mind staying on, David, for a few extra minutes? And he said, no problem. And then and then asked him if, if he would pray for her um, mm. because she felt, you know, just the power of God in the posture. <laughs> and I remember David and I just kind of like really crying together on the phone mm-hmm. saying like, when will church leaders realize that number one, we already have the tools. We already know what to do. We're just mm-hmm. terrified to do it. Yeah. And two, like admit that fear is trying to lead us and control us, which will never end well. It will never end. We will never end in a good place if we're motivated by fear. And then when will we learn just to lay down our lives, you know, for for the vulnerable and for the oppressed. And, and, and I think in this season, you know, sometimes what we're doing is like, when we try to protect the church, we lose the, you know, it's like, if you try to save your life, you're going to lose your life, Jesus Mm -hmm. says. Mm -hmm. But if you'll lay down your life, you know, something else can happen. And I I really think that in the season, that, that, (laughs) that knee jerk reaction of like hanging onto and protecting is just the wrong posture. Mm -hmm. And that God is actually asking us to lay down, even if it means laying down the church, mm-hmm. uh, laying down our reputations, laying down our buildings, like whatever it is we need to lay down. I really think it's a, it's, it's literally like a gospel conversation that we need to have because we already have the tools. So I think having that conversation isn't a bad way to start. Mm-hmm. I know it sounds like theological, but I think you, you will actually, uh, your praxis will always flow from your beliefs. Right. And do you really believe the church is the Lord's? Like, do you really believe that if you, if we lay down our lives for the least of these, that God will be demonstrated, you know, in power, but a different kind of power. Mm -hmm. And maybe that the world's looking for that, 
Like maybe that's actually our best demonstration of the gospel will be in this season and at this time. Um, that, that was beautiful and so much wisdom in there and that story of that conversation with David and how he approached it. I feel like they're, I want to, I'm going to re-listen to that part of the podcast myself when, after we, after we <laughs> do this. So thanks, Daniel. And yeah, just underlining like the importance of asking the right questions, you know, how do we protect ourselves or the church and fear as a motivation versus asking, you said, where is the harm and how do we address it well? And then, and then what is the church and why is the church and, and how is God, how's, how's God's church? How do we respond as part of God's church? Well, all that's, Super helpful, Danielle. And then to kind of keep going on a timeline as we unpack this and and you share this insight for a church then, so this gets reported, I think in an ideal situation, kind of coming into it with repentance, thinking about the victim, about the harm, whether other people have been harmed. Take us then into the next step of maybe of what happened um, in your experience and also, you know, what happened that was good as a next step and maybe what could have been better. So after that report goes in, um, I think you, you think the church was too self-protective and not prepared enough. So being prepared, not being self-protective. And then what's a good next step for a church that's going through a, a reporting of abuse like this? Yeah, I think you have to name what happened for what happened. Um, and I think, I think what happens is sort of like we, we want to sort of land on the lesser, on the lesser charge, if you know what I mean. You know what I mean? Like we mm -hmm. want to plead out mm -hmm. and we want to say, yes, wrong has been done, but like not actually state the wrong that was actually done. Um, so I think there was, I mean, I think the motive was right. I don't know. I'm still a bit confused. And I think one of the things that I was lacking in this, um, when the investigation was done, I was just, there was just a lack of transparency. I didn't read the investigation. Uh, there were some, several emails that were sent out to the victim that were not complete, if you know what I mean. Like there was like one section of like, this was found out and it was just like, there was an inappropriate sexual relationship, which, you know, if you're aware of clergy sexual abuse at all, if you're at all informed on victim-centered care, you would know that a sexually abusive relationship is never called a sexual relationship. Mm. <laughs> That's not what that is. Mm -hmm. uh, like it connotes the idea of like consent and um, abuse by its very nature is, is, is not, you know, there's a, anyway, so there are just some terms that were weird. Like I was like, that's bizarre. Mm. And then actually, why are you using these? Like, why are you saying it like this? And one of the things I really couldn't figure out, because one of the things, the only thing really the victim asked for was it to be named and then for others to be protected. And they were not willing to name what had happened. Hmm. Uh, now they were willing to spell it out. Like they were like, and what they kept saying to me was, we're only going to use the words the investigator used. And so if you string the findings of the investigation together, there was an inappropriate sexual relationship. It was against all of the manuals of the denomination. And then it was an abuse of power. So mm -hmm. if you string all of those three things together and you know what you're doing, you will know that that's clergy sexual abuse. If you don't know what you're doing, you might, you might not. And so one of my conversations with the, well, many, almost all of my conversations with the leadership was, I don't think people know what this means. 
I mean, I know what it means if you add right. all these three things up. It actually amounts to clergy sexual abuse. Nobody disagreed with that, but nobody would actually name it. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, if you're going to say all of these three things, why don't you just call it clergy sexual abuse? And then we can tell people what that is. Ask if there are other victims. Like, you know what I mean? Like start informing people about how to get um, aware of, of how this works and how they can be part of the solution. But they just would not call it that. And that was really the, the time where I was like, I can't, I can't really go on with you guys. I don't know what else to do because I, I don't know that we can move forward if we're not willing to name what's happened here for what it is. And then that's when you resigned from the church to get the kind of timeline and your decision making process as you're going through this. Is that the point then when you resigned? Um, yeah, I promised the victim because mm-hmm. actually what's weird about this is the victim did say from the beginning to me that they'll just call this an affair and yeah. uh, move on mm-hmm. and they'll brand me a homewrecker and they'll say that you know, I'm at fault and they'll make Roxy a victim. And this is how they, this is how they do it. Like I've, you know, so I was like, no, that can't, that won't happen. Like that's not going to happen. And then I promised, I said, no, I'm going to be with you. Like I'm with you no matter what. So even if it does happen, we're in this thing together. Like you're not mm-hmm. alone. Mm-hmm. And so then when it happened, I was like, oh, wow, it's happening. Mm-hmm. Like she's kind of, it's happening nicely, but it's happening. Mm-hmm. And so on the Saturday, it was Saturday night before the staff were told on the Sunday and I had been filling in for teaching. So I'd been the prominent teacher filling in kind of while Brexit was suspended. And, um, and I just said to them, like, if she, if you're not naming this thing, which is the one thing she asked for, if she's not happy with the results of this, I can't, I'm with her. Like, I'm not happy mm-hmm. either. And it'll mean mm-hmm. that I'll need to re- resign. And it, it'll mean that I'll need to resign publicly. Because someone needs to actually express some solidarity with the victim. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so we had all of these like meetings all day Saturday. And then Saturday night, finally, they would not. Dis- and they wouldn't really tell me why. I had one weird conversation with a, one of the leaders that said it is 100% clergy sexual abuse. And I said, then why won't you just say that? And they said, I think it's something about liability. And I was like, okay, yeah, this is not okay with me because your liability is not in what you call it. Your liability is in that it happened. <laughs> right. You right. are liable. Like that's part of what confession means, you know, not just this, it's this guy's fault, but also this happened at your church. Like this mm-hmm. is, you are liable. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I resigned and then they were telling the staff, they had a staff meeting where they were telling the staff and what had happened at that staff meeting, the victim had been given uh, $2,000 in counseling uh, fees, like counseling support for mm-hmm. what she had gone through during the investigation. And as a result of them giving her that money, which actually, by the way, is not very much money for counseling, but as a result of that, she, they kept saying they were supporting the victim, mm-hmm. but she didn't, she felt completely dismissed, unsupported, like invisible, marginalized, silenced again. So she gave them the money back. Mm-hmm. And she said, if anyone does ask about me, here's a statement from me that you can read. That's the only thing you have no permission from me to say that you're supporting me Um, Mm. because this is the opposite of support. Right. Mm -hmm. And so um, in the staff meeting uh, I wasn't there because I had resigned and nobody invited me to come. But in that staff meeting, somebody asked about the victim and they said they had no comment. And in that staff meeting, they didn't even mention that I had resigned And Mm -hmm. so what I realized that night is that they were literally just not going to mention this for as long as they possibly could. 
And the very things that the victim was afraid of were the very things that were happening, where she was going to be silenced again, the harm was going to be minimized, people wouldn't be protected. Um, and so that's when I tweeted, I've publicly, I've resigned in solidarity with the victim. And I'll tell you more once the church tells you. My idea, my hope in doing that was to encourage the church leadership to tell the truth and to read the victim's statement to their people. Um, because I think without me doing that, I'm not sure that would have happened. Mm -hmm. I think their narrative was, this is terrible, tragic, this is the result of the investigation, but unless you're really super informed, you don't even really know what that means. Yeah, underlying the, uh, yes, the next question, Damien, but I, just uh, thinking about this theme of what you just shared, Danielle, and the, the it's pretty, like sort of this theme of, I don't know what the words are, of, you know, taking the risk of faith. It's like being gospel-centered instead of uh, liability-centered or, you know, um, being protection of those who are vulnerable instead of protection of self. And then the risks, the risks of being, you know, taking this to leadership, like being an advocate like you did or, or being willing to resign and different things, but I, I just was wanted to name and think out loud for myself of, you know, part of this theme, which has so much to do with, I think, slowing down and praying and seeking God and and going against fear, like you said, uh, to be able to take these risks along the way to, to go against what um, what the natural systems uh, are in ourselves, as well as like the natural legal systems and everything else. Yeah, and I think, you know, so I think that that one tweet is fascinating, but I think that one tweet did bring some accountability to mm -hmm. the to the church that they did not like. By the way, I'm still not <laughs> very welcome <laughs> there. But I feel like if there wasn't that accountability, then that that actually is the pattern of all of the experiences victims have had so far with church abuse. Mm -hmm. Is the church is this big machine that has all the resources and it just kind of spins um, spins out what it wants. And some of them, like the SBC, way more you know, sort of demonically inspired, right? Where it's like not only denying victims and then like the Ravi Zacharias stuff where they sue the victim for defamation, mm -hmm. even though she's telling the truth. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it gets really harsh on victims. In this case, I mean, they're Anabaptists. The meeting house are like, they're not, they're not bad guys. They're good guys. Mm -hmm. And so this is like the best good guy version of the SBC I could ever imagine. So like it's good guys in that they're well-motived. They don't want to cause harm. But it's like bad guy in that they're just nice about minimizing. You know, they're nice about not saying what actually happened. They're nice about not whistleblowing in the sense of like, is there anybody else? Like, let's see this pattern. So what did happen as a result of that uh, public sort of demonstration of solidarity is that then they did hire a victim advocate. Mm -hmm. And they did actually start saying, okay, if there are any other cases of abuse that are that anybody has, or if anyone's been harmed by leadership, please, you know, here's the person that you talk to. And so then I was really, pr I was really proud of them for doing that. And my understanding is there's more victims. So there's some stuff that needs to come out in order to heal that body. But here's my, my belief is that God wants to heal that body. Mm -hmm. Like this is for the church. Um, and I think like God's just been showing me like radiation treatment on a cancer victim, right? Like if you cannot, you cannot radiate an area of a body just randomly. Mm -hmm. 
you have got to name, it has to literally be located specifically in order to get the light kind of that intensely onto that part of the body to heal it. And I think that's, that's why naming it is just so important. And I love how you said that earlier that we have the tools like confession. That's what confession is, is, um, uh, is, is doing that naming in the hope of restoration and healing. Can you say a little bit more for someone who's listening and think about how, how do we do this well? You know, hopefully this doesn't happen, but it does too many times. What is the, the victim advocate? Can you just talk a little bit more about that and how someone in a church, you know, if they're thinking, oh, we really need to strengthen our plan of response, you know, if this were to happen in our church, uh, can you talk, just say a little bit more about that piece and what a best practice would be around that? Yeah. I mean, I think this is what we were saying earlier, where there's somebody to call with a complaint and that person is still hired by the church, but is independent of the church. So in essence is hired by them as a contractor, but doesn't work for them, mm-hmm. but works with victims. Um, so she would, uh, in this case, my understanding is that you would call her, she would interview you. She would write down, like do a written report with your permission, send it on to the overseers and then suggest an investigation. Um, so there's a bit of a process, then the investigation comes through. And then again, I think there needs to be another plan for when that investigation comes through, what is our communication? How do we train people? How do we help people understand what this is, what this means, and how we move forward? It's a lot, you know, it's a lot to do on the fly. And I think a lot of churches, I mean, the meeting house, the overseers, they're all volunteers, like they have jobs, and then they do this on the side. So I think that also something to keep in mind, like that's a lot for, you know, lay people to really figure out even what clergy sexual abuse is, how it works, what the processes are. Like there's a lot of things. So I think really just getting trained in this area might be just a really wise thing. So a victim advocate is someone assigned to victims and also to follow up with them to see if they're okay, to be available for any questions they might have during the process to help with the timeline. Uh, Any kind of knowledge, like, like even timeline, even we know it takes a while for investigations to be done well, but even communicating what has been done to victims really helps because they feel silenced again mm-hmm. during the investigation. They feel unheard. And um, it's a lot of like kind of re-traumatizing that happens as they tell their story even. So even somebody that's with them when they tell their story, all that kind of stuff where they're not alone uh, is really key for supporting victims well. And Daniel, I want to kind of zone in there on the last part of what you said about uh, being cautious not to re-traumatize. So a a lot of our conversation is kind of focused on how do we go about this in terms of uh, thinking through some of the legal issues? How do we name what we're seeing in front of us? Uh, But how do we actually care well for those that are going through this experience who have been survivors of clergy sexual abuse? What does it look like not just to address the system, but how do we actually love that person in a way that is going to provide healing for them? Yeah. I mean, this is one of the areas I think where I was very, I'm still really disappointed in the meeting house and uh, many other organizations, but I really think even just this act of solidarity, like, So the church provided some victim support, but still all internally. So in their town halls, or like if you got an email from the church, they would say, this is what's happening. And really, basically, they would say, this is a private matter. And I would say to them, um, 
but everything else your church does is a public matter. Like absolutely, like one of the great prides of the meeting house is its impact online. You know, it has a massive impact online. So lots of people watch and follow the meeting house who actually wouldn't be considered like members of it. And so I was like, look, I think what is happening here that you think is a private matter is actually a public concern. Mm -hmm. And that expressing solidarity with victims publicly matters. Like, so your church should be tweeting like me, (laughs) we're sorry. And any other victim that might be a victim of any kind of abuse, like here's the victim advocate's name, here's the victim advocate's number. Like we want to hear from you. We want to do better. Um, Like siding with the victim, especially after an investigation's done, and it's clearly true, (laughs) I think siding, defending. So one of the things that happened with victim number one is um, she was outed by some people online. And even mm. on even on my stuff, I mean, the visceral attacks on there from men mostly, but just kind of like painting. And then Bruxy himself published a confession online, which was really gross if you know what clergy sexual abuse is and, and read what he wrote. It basically is literally the narrative. I had an affair. It's horribly dark and terrible. It was for a long time. He never mentioned how old she was or how long it went or you know, the implications of how it began, you know, and then, and then basically acknowledged that it was an abuse of his power. So basically it's exactly like she thought he had an affair and it's really bad because he's a pastor. That's Mm -hmm. kind of the narrative that everybody wants to spin. And the church never rebuked the blog. The church Mm -hmm. never publicly said, Hey, like this is not the official story. The official story is it was clergy sexual abuse and we stand with the victim. Like, and, and as a result, it exposed her to harm, like lots of harm. Uh, I think so much so she's thinking of changing where she lives. Mm. Like, and I think that's on them. I think that all of that lack of protection, lack of naming, lack of solidarity by the church meant it was open season on the mm. victim. And I think that's one of the things that I really, I guess just really grieves my heart a lot is that not only has this woman experienced so much harm uh, through this church and then had the courage to try to stop the harm for other people, then she was left uh, on her own. And she was left to advocate for herself. She was left to defend herself. So even when this uh, group got together, an anonymous group, nobody knows who it was, and outed her on a bunch of YouTube videos, uh, the church had a warning and called her to say, just so you know, we got this warning and the victim said, like, well, what, what should I do? Like, mm-hmm. what? And they were like, well, yeah, we don't know. Like, basically, too bad for you. And I'm like, you actually can do stuff. Like, for about four grand, you can hire a firm that will investigate who put that up. And, mm-hmm. and then you can actually try. Like, there's things that can be done. But if you're a victim who has no, you're already out of money because you used it all on counseling because you had to give the money back because the church is so unsupportive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, so all of that's on her. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, guys, that's not okay. Like, this is on you. Like, this is your doing. So I also think there's a sense in which churches need to, like, be held accountable and make restitution for mm-hmm. and be on the side of. And that's what I mean is you're, even though you're sort of saying, oh, look, we hired a victim advocate now. Oh, look, we're, you know, we, and, and again, asked Bruxy to resign, which I think is a fascinating idea 
I said, what, you know, what is it exactly you have to do to get fired as a pastor? Mm-hmm. And then also I think there was a package associated with that, which mm-hmm. they won't comment on. So I don't know. Again, total lack of transparency about what actually mm-hmm. went down. And so I, I just think it left. And again, the victim pays the price. Right. You know, the victim is always on the, on the end of paying the price. And I just think the church needs to go, well, wait a minute. This is a weird, we shouldn't be doing this anymore. Right. That's really helpful. Jamie, what else would you, as a psychologist, what else that's all really helpful, Danielle, is for churches to think through and, you know, yeah, it's so sad for the victim who continues to pay the price. Jamie, as someone who's worked with trauma a lot, what are your other thoughts for how churches can um, think about the re-traumatization and other factors of of someone going through this and how uh, a survivor can be loved well through something like this? You know, I, I just really want to echo what Danielle's been sharing with us about the importance of naming things each step mm-hmm. of the way. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that uh, I've taught are some of our students, for instance, who are learning about like disaster or trauma, mental health, about just the power of saying what other people won't see or say, you know, it's kind of like the elephant in the room. Like we all know it's there, but nobody wants to name it. And so I just think that that's so important and wise of what you've shared, Danielle, of, you know, naming that this isn't an affair, this is an abuse and naming that as the person is sharing it with you of naming what happens next of, you know, really every step calling out what we're actually observing and seeing to keep that narrative in a truthful light. Um, And it just made me even think about like how you were talking about, oh, there's nothing we can do to help you when there was a threat. But I bet that it had the threat been against one of the pastors that the church would have found ways to be able to provide protection. So I think, again, that whole perspective shifting about power is just so important. So just so grateful. And, you know, Daniel, we normally end our podcast with these kind of five light questions (laughs) that we call rapid fire. But if it's okay with you, I would prefer not to do that today. Sure. You know, I... Kent and I often talk about, you know, we on this podcast, we talk about heavy things, but one of the things that we do that helps us get through difficult times is sometimes to be able to talk about the mundane and laugh together and these sorts of things. But I just don't feel like today we should go there. And, and instead, I wonder, would you mind just naming a couple of like, what, what's that one takeaway you really want listeners to take from this and maybe end us in prayer if you would? Yeah. Sure. Um, yeah, I was, I was also going to say just really quickly there, you know, other victims are watching and listening. Mm-hmm. And, and this is something that I, I've become acutely aware of as really victims have flocked um, to, to me and through, and to Hagar's voice, which is a organization that we're starting. Uh, it was, the meeting house situation was a catalyst for because as soon as people saw that public act of solidarity uh they were like how do we get in on that like and i it 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 just made me realize like the stakes are so high and and people are watching not only what we do but also what we don't do not only what we say but also what we won't say and um and uh, you know lots of people are sort of like we want to put jesus at the center and I'm always like, but who did Jesus center is the question, you know, to put mm. Jesus at the center means to center the people Jesus centered. Mm-hmm. And, um, that is always the oppressed 
always, every single time, the powerless are the ones. He goes out of his way to get in the way of those who lack power, right, in order to give it away. So um, I really think if there's one takeaway out of this podcast, I would say, please, please, please don't be afraid and like, let the light come, like, let it come and welcome it. Um, welcome the light. So whatever you need to do to move in towards the light and away from the dark, even though we call that dark, you know, lots of other things, just move towards the light and to not be afraid that we are children of the light. You know, this is, this is what God asks us to do is to be the light of the world and to walk in the light as he is in the light. And, um, this is a season where he's really showing us how. And um, as much as it's painful, I really feel like it's, it is actually also our healing and our possibility of, of saving uh, in this season. Mm-hmm. So I would love to pray. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And um, so God, um, thank you so much that you are the light of the world and that you've called us um, to reflect that light, to be that light as well, um, to be a city on a hill. And so I want to ask right now that you would continue the work that you have begun of exposing, of showing us where there is cancer, where there's sin, where there's abuse across all the denominational boundaries. And um, I just, I want to say how sorry we are um, and just confess how desperate we are for you to help us in this season. And Holy Spirit, thank you for leading us into all truth and guiding us. And I, I pray right now that there would just be such a beautiful conviction um, and willingness for the church, all of its leaders, all of its people to lay down our lives um, and to confess and to repent and to make restitution for so that we could be healed. And even so that we could show the Jesus way in real life um, to people who are watching. Uh, We pray for every Hagar every abused woman, every discarded woman, every woman who has been made, or every victim, every guy too, every victim who has been made to feel invisible, uh, discarded, pushed out of the church, left on their own to die by themselves. And we say to the God who sees them, help us see them too. Hmm. And bear witness and be part of and say, your story's not over. Uh, There's a great future for you. And we will contend with the tension and the fear, and we will contend with all of those things with you. You're not alone. Uh, Jesus, please help us. We need you. Amen. Amen. Um, Daniel, thank you. Danielle, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. I just was thinking as you finished praying, I, I feel deeply sad right now. Mm-hmm. Um and I also feel more equipped, and I also feel hopeful. I think that this can change, uh, and that it needs to change, and that's the the task ahead. So, thank you for your time with us. Yeah, you got it. Thanks for joining us for this important conversation as we seek to do good better. As I just mentioned, I end the conversation feeling sad and equipped and hopeful um, that we can do good better, that we have to do good better in this area. Really grateful for Daniel's wisdom and think this can be uh, pointing us forward for how we can keep getting better at um, responding and helping survivors, uh, preventing it in the first place, and then responding well when we have to. So honored to get to seek to do good better 
along with you. I just thought too of the this song "Turning Over Tables" as part of what we we want to do um, as a church: turn over tables for justice for those who are oppressed, for those who are abused, um, so that the gospel can keep transforming lives. Uh, onward we go as we keep seeking to do good better. Tear me down.